Thank you, John. I'm glad you have the freedom of telling stories here. So uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. So uh, I really do appreciate this opportunity to uh, address NTS uh, quite a lot. And I've had the privilege of being part of Manhattan. And uh, John and I have been working here in uh, NIAC. Uh, it's uh, an awesome responsibility to address folks who've kind of been there, done this, and, and ask, what are you going to tell us? <laughs> and uh, this morning, I thought, uh, I'd ask the question, uh, who wants a good life? Mm. Who wants the good life? Mm. Who doesn't? Yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> well, that's the question. <laughs> and I thought I'd uh, just look at uh, scripture, um, Luke chapter 10, which is, of course, the famous section uh, where our Lord tells the story of the Good Samaritan. But he introduces that uh, in a very interesting way. And I read that first, chapter 10, verse 23. He says, our Lord then turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it and hear what you hear and did not hear it. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you answered well. Do this and you live. But he, desiring to be justified, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And of course, you know the story. All right. Uh, what's the point? We're probably sitting here and uh, when our Lord introduces this uh, story saying, blessed are you folks uh, to see what you see, hear what you hear uh, for your living in particular times. We are living in particular times. And I'm not sure very many of us like what we see or <laughs> like what we hear. Uh, but our Lord tells us that we are called in all times and places to ask the question, what is our role that we have to play? And answering the question, what is the good life? So it's very interesting that the book of Psalms starts with Psalm 1, which says, happy is the man. The word happy is in the plural. Happiness. And then it lists all the things that make a person happy, happiness in the plural. There's not one criteria for happiness. All of us, I dare say, would probably answer that question, uh, do you want the good life in the affirmative? And if you ask yourself, have you had the good life? You'd probably say that, especially looking at this particular group, you'd say, yes, a lot has been good. And so therefore, to ask ourselves the question, uh, what is the good life uh, must be uh, focused on the question that is asked by the lawyer. Lawyers do know how to ask good questions. We are seeing that on the January 6th uh, <laughs> you know, broadcast and everything else is going on TV. Uh, so, so, you know, uh, lawyers not only really ask good questions, but they seem to have weird ideas of what is appropriate answers. But anyway, uh, the lawyer asks really the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that's a Jewish way of saying what's the good life. But you see, uh, we've been through the Reformation and we kind of think of eternal life as they are after, go to heaven, play your harps, grow wings, and sing hallelujah all day long. But that's not the Jewish understanding of what the good life is. Good life is to be lived on earth. God comes down to earth, reestablishes kingdom, reestablishes the great intention for his creation and gives us the fullness of life. That is what eternal life. Because you see, when the Jewish person looked at eternal life, he didn't ask, 
uh, what the terminology was. The term that he used or she, as the rabbis would instruct the saying is that, how do you live days upon days? Olam yolam, it's the Hebrew, right? Days upon days. How is the next day going to be so much better than the past day so that I look forward to the next day with greater anticipation than I did in the past? Olam yolam, that's eternal life. Days upon days. How do you enjoy your days upon earth? That's really the question that was being asked. And our Lord says, well, you know, um, righteousness, that's it. You know, you keep the law and, you know, like a good lawyer, keep the law and you're a good law-abiding citizen. That's what it takes. Good. Well, how do I keep the law? There's some 318 or so at last count. And the Lord says, well, okay, fine. If there are 800, 318 tick the box type items, let me tell you the two that matter most. Well, it's not that our Lord had discovered this, the rabbis had discovered this, our Lord was repeating it. And he was saying, you're a good lawyer. Let me tell you what the case law is. The rabbis have told you what? He repeated it. The great Shema of Israel, yeah, the Lord, love the Lord your God with all of your heart. And then he goes to Leviticus, pulls the second one that the rabbi said must be appended to the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. Both of those are anchored in the predicate of agape love. Well, you get that story, you enter the good life. Wanting to be justified, he says, wanting to be disclosed as righteous, he says, who's my neighbor? Of course. Now, very interesting that the Lord ends the story by reversing the question of whose neighbor. Lawyer asks, who's my neighbor? The Lord answers, who are you neighbor to? Please. Read the story. Man asks, who is my neighbor? Because it's a controversy and the day, who is my neighbor? The guy next door is across the road, he's part of my tribe, part of my race, part of my community, part of my nation. Wow, well, who's my neighbor? The Lord says, who are you neighbor to? And if you want to parse the story, it's really uh, three phrases that I usually say is that ask yourself this question. One, the phrase starts, if you analyze the story, uh, with a robbery. And by the way, clothing was extremely expensive. It took several months worth of labor uh, to just stitch a gun, right? So we're fortunate we have mass production of clothing, but clothing was very, very uh, expensive. And so if you had relatively good clothes, you got mugged. That's exactly what happened. And so the first criteria that invariably we ask what a good life is, you know, what's yours is mine, I'll take it. I right? grew up kind of in an environment that says, what's yours is mine, and if I like it, I'll take it. That's a good life. The second one says, two guys come along and they look at the situation and they pass on. What's mine is mine, I'll keep it. That's another way of having a good life. What's mine is mine, I'll keep it. And then finally comes the Samaritan person who uh, looks at the situation. And that's the context of asking, what's mine is yours, we'll share it. What's mine is yours, we'll share it. I think if you look at it, that really encapsulates uh, what we need to understand to answer the question, are you living in good times? You see, uh, let me get to a, a bit of my story. You see, I, I came from India, done my undergraduate studies. I was all of 20 when I came over here, of course, looking for the good life. 
And I landed in this country with $7.50. In those days, $7.50 went a lot further, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Minimum wage was $1.50 just by way of context. <clears throat> and the thing that struck me about this country that we live in is the generosity of people I did not meet. And so I want you to understand that in spite of the things that are going on in our land, and we could have differences of opinion about this, we still live in a great land. That still is struggling with how we understand we need to reclaim that which made us a prosperous country and which is that last phrase, What's mine is ours, we'll share it. And uh, historians look at this and saying is that, you know, when did all of this start going sideways on us? And they start looking at the late 60s, early 70s when, and they've tracked this when we look at all of our literature, you know, Google, by the way, has started this online thing. Uh, they've put online, all of the literature, by the way, all the books that were printed for the last 20, 30 years, you know, then went back all the way to the 60s. It's all online. So you can do a Google search as a name for this uh, service. And so one of the historians went back and started looking at this and asked to tell us or to tell me when the, or how many times did we see the we and I in literature? And they notice a very strange thing. It's in the late 60s and 70s that the predominance of the we, I, occurrence of the word tilted towards the I in the early 70s. And I think that was the beginning when we started losing our focus on community. Let me tell you the context. And again, this is in the context of my story because I, I lived to it. I came in in the 70s. The paradigm for CEO compensation in the 70s, by and large, adopted as the rule of thumb, the CEO got no more than 20 times the frontline person's compensation. CEO Igor, who just left as CEO of Disney. Do you know what the ratio was when he left in terms of his compensation to the front line? Take a guess. Huh? <laughs> All right. 1,100 times from the 70s when it was 20 times to one front line to CEO. By the time Igor retired from Disney, it was 1,100 times the front. You know what happened? We went from a, what's mine is ours, let's share it to what's yours is mine, I'll take it. And as you know, I grew up in that environment, you know, and something else emerged. Our politics went from policy to personality. 
we no longer talked talked about policy as the differentiator. We started looking at personalities as the differentiator. We started voting for people as opposed to voting for policy. Yeah. <laughs> what am I saying? I'm saying, you see, we have to get into this mindset of saying, what is the paradigm that the Lord is asking us to answer the question, what is the good life? I'm telling you, if we continue to go into this mindset that what's mine is mine, I'll keep it. What's yours is mine, I'll take it. If we continue to do this, we will have lost our way down the river. And having gone through that in my own career, one of the things that I felt the need for, and unfortunately I didn't experience it as well, but God was good. Yeah. There were alternative. This for a mentor. This is the question that I'll put to you. Mentoring has become so important. You may be reading the headlines. <laughs> There's a great dearth of men on our campus. You know this. Men are not signing up for college. We have more women, but that's not a, not a bad thing. But we are asking the question, why are men checking out of an education when everything indicates that a college degree helps you in terms of your future and your career? And I think the point that we are saying is that we are beginning to lose good role models. We have gotten into this notion of saying, I know what, community does not matter. You know, if we can get away with making ourselves well off, that's all that matters. And we have said that careers and jobs are everything and so, this generation has bought into this notion that, hey, if I get an education but can't get a job, there's no point in getting an education. So how do we value an education? We value an education if it can get me a job. I, when I was doing graduate study, came out of graduate study with no debt. I dare for any student to replicate that today. Why? Because there wasn't this gap on the income side. You know, you held a job, you could afford to send your children to college. Not anymore. And so what happened? Universities and colleges such as that had to augment through the generosity of people. But guess what? If it hadn't been for the tax laws, we would have been up a creek as they say. And so what the burden has fallen to our students and on average, every one of them leaves with $50,000 of debt. Anyway, that's more than the mortgage I had in my first house. So what are we saying? We say, has this generation got a chance at the good life? We've had a chance at the good life, guys. 
And I'm here to tell you, I thank God for the fact that this country, in spite of all of that which we went through in the turbulent 80s and the 90s and everything else, and <laughs> through what we've just been through recently and what we are going through, there are things that are fundamental to our value systems that we must hold on to and keep sight of. And one of those is our faith. And, you know, I'm not asking which lies, so whether you're red, blue, or green, or yellow, or whatever, right? But glad that the Supreme Court affirmed that, you know, religious uh, rights are important. It means a lot to us because we rely on, you know, funding that comes from various sources for our students. 60% of our students are on Pell. You know what that means? That means that 60% of our students are at or below the poverty line. That's how much you need to qualify for the Pell. Ah, thank God the government has that. Oh, those students wouldn't. And so, yes, what I'm getting to, I'm saying is that the things that we are facing on our campuses and on our things are driven by the answer to the question, what is the good life? And have we lost sight of answering the question of what is the good life? I'm telling you that our Lord said, the good life always consists in recognizing that we must live in community. And I'll try and wrap up with this. You know, the great controversy about natural selection and Darwinianism and all this, the survival of the fittest. That is what is known as the Darwinian problem. What's the Darwinian problem? Darwin couldn't account for altruism. Story, two guys running away from a lion. One guy is running fast, the other guy is stopping to tie shoelaces. The other guy says, why are you tying your two shoelaces? He says, I only have to run faster than you, right? <laughs> altruism. Yeah? So Darwin couldn't answer the question. So he came up with this great idea. He says, you know what? In order to make his theory work, he says, yeah, you know, we pass on our genes individually, our DNA individually, but we survive corporate. Without community, we will not. That's how we answer the question of why altruism makes sense in a Darwinian doggy dog way, survival of the So I'm coming back to this point. Guys, I survived and flourished in spite of not having mentors because of various dynamics because of the power of community. The two communities that we're for, the home and faith communities, however that is Was talking to uh, reading the writings of the late chief rabbi of England, Lord Sachs. He says, You know, we in the Jewish faith, he said, always believe that worship is in the home, not in the synagogue. Worship's in the home, not in the synagogue. I'm grateful for godly parents, grandparents. One of the tragedies of our times is that our families are broken down. Day after day, in our institutions, 
We're just not administrators and teachers. We're learning to have to be pastors. 60% of our students are in counseling. Few research. 37% of pastors left in the last two years, their positions. Pastors, religious youth workers, 37%. Another 24% said they would leave if they could find another job. <clears throat> so, but we have the good life. We must begin to reclaim. And this is where I'm pleading for you guys. Be mentors to our men, to our students. Come alongside of them. Pick a few. Our homes are broken. There are fathers, single mothers that are trying to cope. And that's where Naya comes in because we said, you know, well, when I'm Yale and Harvard, or, you know, even Rutgers, you know, I went there. So. Not good enough to You know, what do we do? We said, our Lord said, look after these, the least of these, my brothers and sisters. That's community first. That's family. We never discard those that are at the margins. Ever. We show them great love. We show the great care. And that's what that's about. And that's what I experienced. I experienced this in my own family growing up. I experienced this in this great land that I landed up in that gave me the opportunities to succeed. I may not have had the mentors, but the faith community came alongside and encouraged me on that walk. And if we begin to start losing the answers to the question, what is the good life? You need to be born. Blessed are you for what your eyes see. Blessed are you for what you guys hear. Brian, thank you. You came to us. You generously supported. But we need men to be the mentors for our kids. Show them what you know, manhood's all about manhood and not the you know, cigarette ads that you see, whatever, right? Genuine. <coughs> that knows how to respect women. You know, one of the tragedies of our times is the high divorce rates. Of We've experienced that too. We see this in the lives of our children. The biggest thing and end that you can do is to create a stable home. It may not be without friction. I tell you, I, my own family, my father and mother, they lived in loving bickering, as my father used to say. <laughs> <laughs> Please, what's my plea? 
this next generation needs to answer the question, what's the good life? And it will depend upon our generation that has answered that question to come alongside this generation and answer for them and help them to answer the question. Because it's pretty fractured. What's yours is mine. What's mine is mine. What's yours is ours. For the sharing. Who's neighbor? Who's neighbor? Thank you everyone for this time.